pray with me. Our God and Father, we come before you with hearts heavy on behalf of Francesco and Claudia. Although we, as your children, do not mourn as those who have no hope, Lord, we do nevertheless mourn. We lament sin and the effects of its curse on this world. We groan with this earth, longing for the day when our Savior, Savior will return to make all things new. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask particularly that you would overwhelm Claudia with a sense of your comforting presence, and may she rest in the knowledge that her dad is with his Lord. Strengthen the saints of Jesus' encounter in Geneva as they are fatigued in the heart of a community that has been ravaged by this plague. Lord, give them the heart of a pilgrim, looking forward to a home whose foundations cannot be shaken. And now, Lord, we thank you for another Lord's Day when we can hear from your word. In your providence, you've prevented us from gathering together for worship, but you have still graciously allowed for us to hear your word presented, even in these abnormal circumstances. Be merciful to our land, Lord, and let this virus pass. Teach us and sanctify us. Sanctify your church and kindly lead the inhabitants of this country to repentance and faith. Be merciful to your people and let us come together again. And in all this, Lord, work into our hearts a humble gratitude. All that we have is all of grace. If we should never be allowed together to, to gather together again, we would still have unimaginably more than we deserve. Father, fill your church with your Holy Spirit, our comforter and our helper, for many of your children need to be comforted. Protect us from despair. Protect us from adding emotional and relational and spiritual isolation to our physical isolation. Comfort the depressed among us. Encourage the fearful among us. Give peace to the anxious among us. Strengthen the weak among us. And now speak through me this morning and use your word and my words about your word to administer blessing to your people with precision. We pray these things in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading Joel chapter 25 through 27. We're going to be surveying the whole book of Joel, but I'd like to begin by reading Joel chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. The prophet says this, or God says through the prophet, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. There is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. The prophet Joel is an interesting book in the Bible. 
because there's very little we know about the book of Joel, historically speaking. And this is a kindness to us in a way, because it prevents us from too much historical distancing, right? So the anonymity of the book sort of invites us to see ourselves in it instead of hiding behind, oh, that was then and this is now. We know nothing about Joel, the person, except what we can learn from this prophecy, which is that he is the son of Pethuel, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, and that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, probably. But unfortunately, we don't even know when he's prophesying, right? So remember, all of these prophets uh, are situated either before, during, or after exile into a foreign land. And we don't even know when Joel is prophesying exactly, if it's before Judah's exile or after it. Cases can be made on both sides from the internal evidence of the prophecy, but ultimately, we don't know for certain when it was written. And so the who and the when of the human author of Joel is a little bit fuzzy, but that isn't a problem for us because we know the divine author, right? We know that this is written by God and it's written within the context of a whole Bible. And so we can make a lot of sense of it that way. The prophecy is split neatly up into two sections. It's split right down the middle. So uh, chapter one into the middle of chapter two describes God's judgment and a call to repentance. And then chapter two, verse 18, until the rest of the book, describe the Lord's mercy and restoration in response to that repentance. And this whole book is sort of gravitating around a central event that happens. And the event that occasions this book is a natural disaster on the scale of near national extinction. Um, devastation is about to strike Judah in the form of a locust attack, leaving the nations in shambles. Right? And I'm smiling, not because that's funny, but because the Lord's providence, we have landed right here in Joel in this present moment where we are faced with um, a natural disaster that really threatens to, uh, the, the population of, of several places, um, Italy included. And so it's the Lord's kindness that we um, have landed here. And you get a picture of what is happening in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Right? This may not seem very devastating to us in a society where the production of our food feels very disconnected from the consumption of it. But just try to put yourself in an ancient agricultural context. One minute you're living off the land, enjoying the fruit of your labor, living in prosperity. And then overnight, overnight you are staring down utter famine with extinction as a very real threat. Right? Joel isn't being dramatic when he says in, ch in chapter 1 verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. For the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Things will be bad for Judah. 
Things will be so bad, in fact, that verse 13 says the people will even be prevented from worshiping God with their wine and their grain offerings. Right? He says, go in, pass in the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of God. And this, is, this suggests that maybe their sin, maybe Judah's sin that brought about this judgment was dishonoring God with hollow worship. It may be that God was stripping them of their props for external and vain worship. And there's a word for us here, isn't there? Guys, how highly ought we value the ability to come bodily to worship? Verse 13 is describing the height of the devastation Judah is about to face. This is, this is as bad as it gets for Joel. Not that people don't have food to eat, but that there will be no more worship. This is what Joel considered to be so lamentable about the locust plague. We can't worship Yahweh with our grain and our wine offerings anymore. And this is why, guys, it's not wrong for us to consider this season of homebound prevention of congregational worship a lamentable tragedy. It's because it is. That's what it is. And in the wreckage of this devastating scene, God announces through Joel that this natural disaster was intended to shake them from their complacent slumber. He says, awake you drunkards and weep, verse five. He is shaking them awake to give them this solemn warning. He's saying the locusts are not just a natural disaster. They are from the hand of the Lord. They are a decisive judgment from God. Yahweh is coming. Yahweh is coming in judgment to punish them for their persistent faithlessness. And his judgments are so completely exhaustive. He uses the imagery of an invading army that completely destroys the land to get at how serious he is. So he says in verse 3 that the land, chapter 2, verse 3, that the land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. And then in verse 6, he says, Before them the peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap up upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is what it's like when the Lord comes to judge with vengeance in his eye. He strips the land bare. He's thorough. He is decisive. Nothing hinders him or keeps him from his judgment once he sets out on his campaign of vengeance. And this, this particular manifestation of God's judgment 
is doubly devastating for this people because of what it implies in light of the Exodus narrative, right? So the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, the story of God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian captivity through Moses at the very beginning of the nation's history had become sacrosanct for them, right? It was woven into their identity as a nation. When they thought of themselves, they thought of themselves as those who had been delivered from Egypt. And one of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt when he delivered Israel was a plague of locusts, right? And so the fact that God is now bringing locusts upon his people implies that they have positioned themselves in opposition to him, just like Egypt had. Right? They made themselves his enemies, and now he is returning in kind. He's returning in kind, and yet this first section of the book is capped off with a truly hope-filled invitation to repent and be restored. So he says in chapter 2, verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And then Joel says this, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Isn't it striking that the greatest sign of God's blessing for Joel is the ability to once again worship? He's saying maybe God will show us mercy and let us worship again. Who knows, maybe he'll even let us worship again. And that's the end of the first section of this book. And so if the first section ends with an invitation to repent, the second section is a staggering picture of what restoration and glory awaits on the other side of that repentance, right? So chapter two, verse 18 begins with this. Then the Lord had, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And then he goes to describe how everything he promises to destroy in the first section of the book, he promises to restore in the second Right, so he promises to restore their grain and wine and oil and reputation in verse 19. He promises to establish their safety in verse 20. And then in verse 25, where we read um, earlier, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. The picture of the future promise is one of total and complete restoration, right? It is an utter reversal of the judgment. It is redemption in the fullest and truest sense of the word. 
It is all the sad things coming untrue, in the words of Samwise Gamgee. And all of these promises in Joel are couched, you'll notice, within the crucial concept that we see all throughout the scripture, but particularly in the prophets, and that is the concept of the day of the Lord. This is a governing theme in Joel's prophecy. It's explicitly repeated no less than five times in this little book. And the concept of the day of the Lord is pretty flexible for the prophets, right? It doesn't refer flatly or exhaustively to some particular day on the calendar, but rather it refers to uh, a moment of significant culmination. So the day of the Lord isn't simply referring to a when, but rather to a what that implies a when. It is God's consummate finality. It is his end times visitation. So it refers to his action of coming in power to finish the story of human history, which is both devastating for God's enemies and thrilling for his people. And this is why it's described with both decreation language and salvation language. Right? So decreation language, language falling apart. So he says the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But he also uses to describe the same concept, salvation language. Like, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? So the idea is that God comes in judgment and his creation, the works of his hand, is disoriented and scrambles frantically about as he brings wrath on his enemies. And yet in the midst of all of this chaos and carnage, his people are kept secure in him. So that's the overview of the book of Joel, right? The first section, in the first section, God solemnly warns the people of his devastating impending judgment, and then he invites them to repent, and then in the second section, God promises their repentance, and then he promises the fruit that will come from that repentance. That is the full restoration of everything that he takes away from them in judgment. But did you catch that? Don't miss that central paradox, that mystery. God invites the people to repent, and then he promises their repentance. Section one, he invites them to repent. Section two, he promises that they will repent. And then he promises them a whole bunch of other things that he will do because they will repent. How is this possible? How is it possible for God to promise what he invites them to do? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills Joel's prophecy. And he's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy on a number of levels. First of all, Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh the one who saves everyone who calls on his name. He is Israel's stronghold, promised in Joel. And we know this because in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, when it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Okay, well, where else do we see that? Paul actually quotes this verse directly in Romans 10. And Paul 
equates obedience to this verse, calling on the name of Yahweh, with confessing Jesus as Lord by faith. So in chapter 10, verse 9 of Romans, Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then in verse 13, his proof text is for, and then he quotes this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To call on the name of Jesus is to call on the name of the Lord, according to Paul. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy on one level because he is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who restores to his people the years that the locusts have eaten. He is the one offering all of these glorious promises to his people through Joel. Christ himself promises in the book of Joel what he promises elsewhere in scripture, namely that he is making all things new. But Christ is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy on another important level. He fulfills this prophecy by obeying the invitation to repent and be faithful to God's covenant. So the invitation is given at the end of the first section. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord. And Jesus takes him up on that invitation. And this is how he can both invite repentance and promise repentance. He promise, he can promise his people's repentance because he repents for them. Not in the sense that he himself is a sinner in need of repentance personally. Okay? He's not. He's not a sinner. But in the sense of representation. He represents his people. And this is the glorious story of Scripture. Over and over and over again, we see that God's people cannot obey His commands. They cannot be faithful to the covenant. So God Himself obeys for them in the person of the Son coming in the flesh. Jesus represents Israel with His perfect life and death of obedience and resurrection, and so in this way, he guarantees all of these promises for his people. How do we know this? What, what, what can give us this sort of idea when we look through scripture as a whole? Well, think back on when Jesus began his public ministry on earth, when he was baptized by John the Baptist. This was his, his public uh, his public coming out into ministry. This was his his, his public declaration that his public ministry was beginning. And all four of the Gospels give an account of this event. So you know it's important. Now when we think about that, we should ask the question, what kind of baptism was it? What did it symbolize? What did John the Baptist's baptism symbolize? Well, it wasn't Christian baptism in which a person is immersed and water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a symbolic way of identifying with the crucified and resurrected Jesus and then as a way of joining his church, none of that stuff had happened yet, right? In other words, the baptism that John the Baptist administered didn't mean the same thing for, that, for them that our baptism means for us. The, the baptism that John the Baptist administered and that Jesus participated in didn't mean the same thing symbolically as our baptism does. So what was his baptism for? And the answer uniformly in the Gospels is repentance. John the Baptist 
administered a baptism of repentance. It was an invitation for faithless Israel to repent of her treachery against her covenant-making God. He was saying, Israel, come and repent and be restored to God because the day of the Lord is at hand. The Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, Israel. And then Jesus is baptized. Jesus takes John the Baptist up on his invitation. And this is not to say that Jesus himself had anything to repent of. He didn't. But Jesus was representing Israel, who had a lot to repent of. And so he did. And we know that this is what's happening because here in Joel 2, God promises that after Israel repents and calls on the name of the Lord, this will happen. In chapter 2, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Guys, this happened. This happened 2,000 years ago. The beginning of the day of the Lord was inaugurated when Jesus was crucified and the, the sky was turned to darkness and the earth quaked and the veil in the temple was torn in two. That was the beginning of the day of the Lord. This happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was obedient unto death, when he purchased the church with his blood and began to build it. And we know that this started to happen then because Peter explicitly tells us so. Right. So think about this. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends and fills the first Christians and they come out declaring the glories of God miraculously in many different languages and the inhabitants of Jerusalem thought that they were drunk. The book of Acts in chapter two says this, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this, listen, this is what he says. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he quotes that whole passage from Joel chapter 2. Okay, so that was a lot. Let me recap just to make it crystal clear. The prophet Joel, in, in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel invites Israel to repent of her sin and to call out to the name of the Lord. And then he promises that when Israel does that, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. That's what he promises in Joel. If you repent, God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then, all the way in the New Testament, Jesus is obedient and is baptized with a baptism of repentance on behalf of his people. And he lives this perfect life and death of obedience. And then after all of that happens, God pours out his spirit on all flesh. In his baptism, Jesus represents Israel. 
doing what Israel was commanded to do except doing it right for the first time in human history. And then all of those who trust in Christ by faith are made partakers of that obedience. And this is why we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you have trusted in Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit has taken up residency within you. We are made partakers of Christ's obedience, which makes it possible for us to be partakers of all of the benefits that follow that obedience, including the benefit of having the Spirit indwell us. Now, does this mean that we are no longer required to repent of our sin? Right? Am I saying, hey, Christ represents you and repents on your behalf in his baptism, so no need to repent anymore? Well, absolutely not. In fact, the application for us as we read the prophet Joel is exactly the same as the application for those who first received it. It's just that we have more information now. Right, so we read those same words, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and we know what that looks like. We know that calling out to Christ Jesus by faith alone is what it looks like to call on the name of the Lord. And we read the charge to repent. And just like Joel's audience, we know that we must obey and repent. But here's, here's where the beauty is. Where they were faced with the horrifying realization that they were unable to repent truly and lastingly on their own, we know that Christ's obedience is unchanging and complete. And so if our repentance and obedience are rendered by faith in him, we have absolute confidence of its staying power. Praise be to Christ Jesus who secures in his obedience our obedience. Praise be to Christ Jesus who pours out his spirit on his church. Now, I don't want you to miss the massive implications in light of all this. First of all, this means that those of us who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and have his Holy Spirit indwelling us, we are part of God's end times people his eschatological kingdom. Remember, all of this is happening within the context of the day of the Lord, which means that we are living in the already and not yet of God's final judgment, right? The Holy Spirit in us is God's down payment and guarantee for where we are going. The day of the Lord is not a day of uncertainty for us. In fact, we are, in a sense, living in that day right now. We are heavenly citizens, right? So let us remember that, especially now in a season like this in which the groaning of this earth is almost audible, right? The world as it stands is not our home. So may we never lose sight of our heavenly homeland. May we never forget where our true citizenship is. And may we thus face life with this, in this present world as pilgrims and sojourners, right? So this passage and its fulfillment in Acts 2 puts us on a trajectory forward into our future hope. But it also puts us in a family line that runs all the way back to the beginning. In other words, when we are united to Christ by faith, 
we are united to the true Israel, and we are thus grafted into the family tree of Israel. And this has always been God's plan, by the way. The identity, the covenant identity of Israel was never intended to be exhausted in a single ethnic group. Their covenantal identity was always intended to expand, to expand, to cover the globe and include a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And this is what Joel is implying when he says, even your female and male servants will receive the Spirit of God. Right? Many of those servants will presumably include non-Israelite foreigners, which means that this promise to Israel is a promise to the world. It is a promise that is fulfilled in Christ and all of those who are united to Christ, which includes Jew and Gentile. And so when we are grafted into Christ, we are grafted into the whole family tree of Israel. Their story becomes our story. So what does that mean for us? Well, this means that you shouldn't feel weird, for example, about reading Psalms that discuss God's faithfulness to Jacob and Israel and Zion, Psalms that describe our fathers crossing the Red Sea and the like, and reading those as if they apply to you. They do. It's not an imposition for you to read yourself into their heritage. In Christ, you are part of their same story, Christian. Right, so when we read this in Joel chapter 3, verse 16, when we read, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. You should read that as a promise to you, Christian. That is your God. He is your refuge. He is your stronghold. And these times of uncertainty and panic, you can know that your God is for you. In Christ, he roars on your behalf. Now, where does this leave us? I have three pastoral charges for us in closing. And the first is to, to the church, to you, Emmaus. The first charge is this. Despise not God's providences and respond to COVID-19 with repentance. Now, Joel and his audience were to look at the calamity that befell them as a judgment from the Lord, and they were called to repentance. God divinely revealed to them that there was a direct correlation between their faithlessness and the plague swarm of locusts. That is not the case for COVID-19. Right? We cannot point to any one-to-one -one correlation between a particular sin and COVID-19, and we shouldn't even try. But we can nevertheless know that our responsibility in light of COVID-19 is the same as Israel's responsibility in light of the locust plague. Our responsibility is to repent. And we know that this is our responsibility because elsewhere in Scripture we have examples of uh, disasters happening with no direct revelation that it is a direct judgment uh, in response to a particular sin, and the response in those examples is still to repent. So for example, in, in Luke chapter 13, some people come to Jesus, 
and they ask him about this massacre that happened where Pilate mingled the blood of some Israelites with the, the blood of some Galileans with the sacrifices that they were offering, put some people to death. And these people come to Jesus and they essentially ask, hey, Jesus, did these people get what was coming to them? Was this a direct judgment from the Lord? And Jesus essentially answers, that's the wrong question, right? That's the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking that. The question is, will you get what's coming to you or will you repent? That is the best thing that we, that we can do. That is the best thing that our country can do right now in the midst of its calamity. Because even though we don't know at this point all that God is trying to teach us through this, we do know that he is sovereign and he is good and that COVID-19 is therefore from his hand. And we also know that this world is incredibly wicked. Specifically, this country is incredibly wicked. You guys, just think about this. A nation that peddles sex and makes a mockery of God's created order and murders infants on unfathomable scales, that kind of nation richly deserves utter destruction. A cultural Christianity, which is American Christianity, a cultural Christianity that trivializes worship and domesticates God and peddles a gospel of prosperity does not deserve the privilege of gathering we weekly to worship the living God, which simply means this. We have absolutely nothing to leverage God's favor all that we can do is repent of our sin and plead for his mercy. That is our responsibility as the church and that is the world's responsibility as God's rebellious creation. So may we lead them by example and charge this watching world to repent and believe. Joel says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And we can say, who knows whether the Lord will turn and relent, leaving us the blessing of congregating once again to sing and pray and listen and confess and break bread. So that's the first charge. Don't despise God's providences and respond with repentance. The second charge is this. Consider the times and be faithful with a sense of urgency. Right? And this charge can have a thousand points of application, but I have two in mind. First of all, be faithful with a sense of urgency in terms of resistance to sinful desires. Recognizing that you are part of God's end times people in route of your eternal homeland with Christ, recognizing that fact infuses each and every moment with eternal significance. Your temptation to sin is not just a small moment of insignificance. It is a scrimmage in a cosmic battle. Think about this. When we are faced, what we are faced with in the hour of temptation is the choice between taking orders from our king as a faithful soldier in conflict with the powers of darkness or committing treacherous rebellion against him. 
The situation really is that stark. The choice is that stark. In the moment of temptation, will I be obedient to my king and wage war against the powers of darkness? Or will I be treacherous against him and align with the powers of darkness? And that raises the stakes and should motivate us with wartime urgency. But secondly, being faithful with a sense of urgency is necessary because our end times, our identity as God's end times people should compel us to global missions. The people that we belong to, God's end times people, whose true home is heaven, the people who have the Holy Spirit poured out on them, that people, the identity of that people, is a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And we are in the middle of God's gathering process of him bringing all the nations into Christ, the true Israel. We're, we're living in the middle of that process. And the way that God brings about that process, the way that he brings the nations into Christ is by us. His people faithfully going to the nations to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus. Oh, church, may we see an urgency in our body to then go to the nations, right? Maybe with this season of social distancing, God is doing for us the grace of cutting some idolatrous cords to comfort and ease. Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe he's allowing for us to lose a sense of, of, of at-homeness with this world so that we can face the future with open hands and full hearts for the nations. Guys, may the conclusion of this season of social distancing end with the, the floodgates opening up and a new wave of global mission zeal washing over this world that, was, that will be fatigued by sickness and death. It will be primed and ready for a message of hope. That's where our world will be. As soon as we are allowed to go to the nations again, the nations will be tired from sickness and plague that has ravaged it. And they will be desperate for a message of transcendent hope, the polar opposite of what celebrities are singing to us right now. A message of actual transcendent hope. Not a message of maybe there's no heaven above us and maybe there's no hell below. That brings no hope whatsoever. And that is not what our world wants to hear right now. In their heart of hearts, they will be primed and ready, fatigued by sickness and death to hear a message of hope. So let's go give it to them. And third and finally, my third pastoral charge is this, unbeliever. Any non-Christian who happens to be tuning in, you are charged to redeem the times and call out to Christ in repentance. And you're to do this because the day of the Lord is at hand, Christian. It began 2,000 years ago when Christ was crucified and it is culminating. It will culminate. And believers in Christ look forward to that day with great anticipation we look forward to the return of our King. We proclaim it in hope and joy and anticipation every time we celebrate communion. We look forward to it because when the Lord comes to vindicate His holiness in the face of overwhelming wickedness and rebellion, we have nothing to fear. 
and we have nothing to fear, not because we don't have any wickedness or rebellion in our hearts, but because all of our wickedness and rebellion have already been accounted for in the death of Christ. He has already suffered for our guilt. We Christians have nothing to fear because Christ is the rock of ages that we are hidden within. We know that we will not be crushed by him because we have already taken refuge in him. But if you have not done so, unbeliever, beware. Because the day of the Lord for you is a terrifying day. In the words of Joel, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness for the day of the Lord is very great and awesome. Who can endure it? Understand this, friends. There is no avoiding the day of the Lord. This is God's world and we have ravaged it with sin and rebellion. And as creatures made in his image, we, has, we have blasphemed him and have scoffed at his holiness. And his holiness demands that he render a judgment. The only question before you is this. Will he render that judgment in Christ on your behalf or on you directly? The only question before you is this. Will that day be a day of great joy and hope fulfilled? Or will it be a day of dread and horror? Will it be the consummation of hope for salvation? Or will it be simply the reaping of all the sin you have sowed? And that day, if it is that, it can be transformed from a day of dread into a day of joy for you, non-Christian. It can be transformed today. And it doesn't matter if you have lived decades of rebellion or flight from God. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because our God is a God who delights to restore the years the locusts have eaten. So run to Christ by faith today. Run to Christ by faith today. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, reach out to us. We want to tell you. You can reach out to elders at EmmausKC.com. You can reach out to us in any number of ways. But we want to hear from you. We would love to tell you what it looks like to follow Jesus. We would love to do that. Let's pray. Our triune God, thank you for your word and your faithfulness to your promises. Encourage Convict, comfort, and instruct us accordingly. Lord, we long to gather again and to commune with you and with one another at the table. But until then, increase our affections for Christ and increase our affections for one another. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Emmaus, may our triune God bless you and keep you this week as you continue to homestead. May he meet with you in sweet times of repose and instruction. And may you continue to, as you continue to fast from so many of the things you're used to. And may Christ fill the absence created by this season with himself.
And may your affections for him and for one another increase and overwhelm the sadness of isolation. May he do all of this for your good to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I miss you guys. I love you. More information about AmazeKC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.